0: I'm Marianne Kolbasak-McGee, executive editor at Information Security Media Group. Today, I'm speaking with Scott Stewie, who recently joined Direct Trust as its president and CEO. Direct Trust is a nonprofit organization that maintains the policies, standards, and practices of the Direct Protocol for point-to-point encrypted messaging for healthcare. So, Scott, as we know, Direct Trust helped to propel the advancement of secure health information sharing, but focused on one on one types of encrypted exchange, including provider to provider and provider to patient secure communication. As you take over the leadership role at Direct Trust, what direction do you foresee direct trust going with secure health data exchange? For instance, will the organization be involved in efforts to promote other types of more complicated, secure, interoperable exchange of health information? And if so, how will direct trust be involved in those other efforts?
1: Direct trust has really three key aspects. It's a network, it's a trust framework, and it's a membership organization. That's kind of the way I see the organization today. And I want to try and make certain that we continue to do what the organization has been doing so successfully so far. That is to grow that direct network that at this point 1.7 million connected participants that are sending over 500 million transactions a year by that mechanism that you described. So I guess I'd start by saying I want to do no harm to the already growing and healthy organization as is. So there, that's sort of job one. But in terms of how to grow the organization from here, there is a desire to take advantage of our trust framework for other protocols and, and other use cases. And certainly, we can take the protocol that we already have and grow that into use cases beyond just the exchange of uh, information about the, the encounter that's just taken place or what people have been calling a transition of care. So beyond transition of care, there's the closed group referral idea that we want to try and grow it into. There's also laboratory results we'd like to, you know, start communicating. Those things we can do within the current protocol. But the growth of some other key areas of exchange, so FIRE in particular, the APIs, the application programmer interfaces that make it possible for application programmers to create applications that connect to lots of different healthcare systems and pull that data down that is really exciting and i think has great promise in terms of people getting access to their own record which is obviously a very important part of this interoperability between health systems has been the the activities that that frankly have been the job one of the of most of the initiatives but we've already been involved in trying to connect the consumer and that's very very complicated and challenging so as you try and do that this the fire apis are seen as really i guess the silver bullet that's going to make that possible so fire and working with also emerging technologies like blockchain are also of interest. I have calls even in my first couple of weeks with several organizations that are involved with blockchain. So, eager to evaluate where these these new technologies are heading and how they're going to impact the healthcare interoperability landscape. In terms of how we look to actually do this, I want to continue the ongoing relationship that Direct Trust has had with the federal government and that's been a very you know healthy and warm relationship between the ONC and direct trust uh, as we were sort of a part of the exercises that were a part of the, the stage two meaningful use requirements. But I think what really needs to happen today is we need to move more into connections to the market-based efforts. So the multi-stakeholder organizations that are looking to create those collaborations between consumer-focused organizations and provider organizations and the standards. That's, I think, where the really big new change could take place, is if we can get, basically, weld the consumer organizations onto fire and have that connected by a trust framework like direct trust. That's, I think, where we believe the where the rubber is going to meet the road in the next era.
0: So Scott, with that said, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing interoperable secure health data exchange? For instance, is it more of a technology issue or is it a business competitive sort of issue for organizations to be willing to share the information that patients would like to see shared?
1: So the two topics I think that are really the biggest barriers are, they're really sort of flip sides of the same coin. People call it adoption, but really use. So use, and usability. So is it worth using and are you using it? I mean, these are the biggest challenges we have in interoperability. So the EHR, for example, at this point in time is still lacking a lot in terms of usability and the workflows that are least usable in the EHRs are those that are used for interoperating with the outside world. And So making those more usable is, I think, one of the big things that that needs to happen in order to make interoperability happen. So the adoption will drive from that usability. And that's the same sort of usability that we expect the consumer organizations to have a role in. Since they're so good at creating those usable experiences for consumers, we believe that'll have a, a big impact.
0: So, Scott, we hear a lot about information blocking when it comes to the federal government's interest in trying to have organizations not prevent information from being shared when appropriate. How significant of a problem do you think intentional and inappropriate information blocking is in healthcare, and why?
1: I spent the last three years of my career at Cerner working on interoperability with our clients, you know, pretty much across all of the the ways you could do interoperability. And I can tell you that toward the end of that, of my time at Cerner, I saw less of the overt information blocking culture, less and less of it as time went by. I think partly because the organizations started feeling like their motivations were changing. And that's because the payment models are beginning to shift. I mean, basically as long as fee for service was the order of the day, in other words you get paid for more of what you do, it's somewhat understandable that people would treat information or data on patients as their asset because frankly it was their way of competing with their neighbor. Now it once the focus of healthcare is on quality, and if, you're, if the way you're paid is based on the patient's health and outcomes, then it really will change the model. And once that shift is complete, then I think information blocking won't even be, it won't be likely a, a thing. Because frankly, at that point, organizations are going to have the opposite in terms of motivation. If, for instance, my patient leaves me and goes to see you, It's actually pretty useful if you can get access to all the data on my patient when they were seeing me, because frankly, it's more likely they'll come back to me healthier and better off if they have all the information when they travel around, which patients do. They are not terribly sticky to their provider. They may be sticky to one, but they may visit many, many dozens over the course of their life, and they may be very sticky to one and not very sticky to the majority of the rest. So getting all that information around is actually going to be pretty important once the, once the payment model shifts. But for the moment, the payment model is still not all the way to value. It still has remnants of the fee-for-service model remaining. And as long as that's the case, interoperability will struggle a little bit from this challenge of information blocking, if you
0: will. Now, Scott, you had mentioned APIs, fire, blockchain. In terms of the healthcare sector's ongoing work as well as emerging technologies to advance secure interoperable health data exchange, what is most promising to you?
1: Well, I think as do you try and imagine a future where the patient plays a role in how their data is exchanged? I mean there are there's a lot of promise in the notion that the patient might be the hub of data exchange. In order for that to happen, it's going to require that patients really start engaging. And in order to get patients to really engage, I think that the biggest impact could be if applications can't be created that are in, you know, very, very usable and interesting to patients, to consumers about their healthcare. So I see the combination of the consumer companies and the APIs being the most exciting and promising aspect of all this. If you put those two things together, it makes it possible to imagine an application that a consumer could use where they can manage not just the care aspect of their health, but also the payment aspects of their health. And frankly, when you think about what most folks really, really want to do right away with apps on their phone, they're mostly around the economics of what they're doing. So it's buying things and selling things that people do on their phone very effectively. So if we have the ability to comparison shop for healthcare or to see our bill or pay our bill or find out how much we have left on our FSA, in addition to getting access to our healthcare information, that's the kind of application that is made possible by the emergence of fire on the care side because there were already APIs for communicating with the financial side of the world. As an individual, I've had an application on my desktop that's allowed me to connect to multiple banks, and I've had it since the very beginning of Windows. I mean and so I've had Quicken sitting on my desktop connected to three or four banks downloading transactions using a standard that's an open API. I've been doing that since Windows 3.1, so really, really back to the, I guess that's 1989, something like that. So when when I think about the kind of things that are possible as you put APIs together with organizations that understand what consumers want and have consumers already at their feet, that is what is really exciting. Consumers are hard to attract, and so it's arguably Direct Trust who has more consumers connected than any of the other healthcare initiatives. We've got 225,000 consumers that have direct addresses that are able to communicate with their doctors. And that's not nothing, but it's a very small percentage of the of the consumer population. And that is, I think, due to the fact that we don't have the consumer at our feet in Direct Trust and neither do the providers. The providers are really, they connect to patients when they're patients, not when they're healthy. And the consumer organizations have that visibility to patients before their patients, when they're healthy and just buying things on Amazon or searching things for on Google or using an app that they use on their iPhone or Android device. Those kinds of connections will make it possible for the consumer app that's usable and drives their use to happen.
0: And finally, Scott, when it comes to cybersecurity and privacy issues, what do you see as the biggest hurdle in terms of advancing interoperable health data exchange?
1: Well, I think this is where direct trust plays a quite uh, substantial role. I mean, I think in, in the cybersecurity space, the challenges you have are around misidentification, either misidentification or even misrepresentation. So, as a as somebody who's pretending to be someone else in the healthcare sphere is a pretty frightening thought certainly an api that's masquerading as mayo.com for example that you don't you don't have any way of knowing is actually not your phr or an individual who you know claims to be your doctor but isn't or a patient who claims to be the patient in question, but actually is just somebody outside of the country who is using an application that they downloaded and pretending to be that person, having grabbed enough personal information and they're able to do what's necessary to get connected to their system. That is, I think, the biggest risk. So in order for that to really work well, I think the best possible technologies and processes that enable the most secure connections is what i think people are going to demand and so particularly the provider organizations are very very antsy about the notion of patient right to access to their data using an api because frankly it means that you know they're uncertain that the patient will be you know able to be identity proofed successfully so identity proofing the organizations involved in a network environment as well as the individuals involved and ensuring that the traffic on those channels is protected by a technology that is modern and, and effective. I mean, those are, I think, the things that we need to really focus on. So direct trust has a role to play there. I think new technologies may have a role to play there as well. I think, you know, in order to keep ahead of cyber criminals, you have to be using the very latest in technologies because they will. And, you know, in general, PKI, I think, is is a pretty safe environment, but we'll be looking to update our trust frameworks technology underpinnings as needed as time goes along. I do think you have to stay current and up to date.
0: Thanks, Scott. I've been speaking to Scott Stewie. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.